The comments from the front row are always the best. <laughs> Little boy says, Mommy, now are you done? <laughs> if you were here on Christmas Sabbath, you may remember we had the children collect the offering. I tell you this often, the front row seats are better. There was one charming girl who caught my attention as she came back and went back and forth between the congregation and the baskets up here as we had you put your offering in their little hands. And trip after trip, she would drop her offering in the baskets until this last trip up, she came with her sticky little hands and coins one at a time and bills one at a time and until she got to this last thing, a tithe envelope. She looked at the tithe envelope, she looked at the basket. She looked at the tithe envelope, she looked at, she looked at you, she looked at the basket, she look, I have no idea if she, her knowledge, if she knew what was in her hand was more than what she just dropped. <laughs> she takes a step away from the basket with this tithe envelope in her hand, but she knows what she's supposed to do. I was worried we were going to have to get up and say, excuse me, little girl. <laughs> yeah, she turns around and drops the tithe envelope in the basket. Hard work, it was hard. She gives us a non-threatening look, though, at ourselves this morning. But the difference between what we know we ought to do and that instinct inside of us, that which pulls at us, which drives us, we're like children with sticky little hands often in the world. We get a picture of God's vision, but, mm, really? Do we have to? She helps us in our conversation we began last week about the Christian in the public square. How is a Christian to be in the world with political conversation, with public policy, with the government? I want to continue today the same conversation. Next week we will go on for a third and be done with this conversation. That instinct that we have, that that child had, it's in the Bible. On the night before Jesus goes to the garden and on to Pilate and on to Herod and, and to Calvary, on the night when he was sitting with his disciples, the Bible says a dispute arose among them. I hope we won't miss the juxtaposition of the conversation there this morning. On the night they're sitting together celebrating Passover, that is, celebrating the mighty acts of God, what God's done for them, on the night where they recall they recline, and a dispute arose. Now for us, it would be like the communion table. Imagine we've had the cup and the bread, the songs, the remembering, the, the imagining, the kingdom in the end, all of what happens at communion here. If you had a moment right then, just a quiet moment to talk with Jesus, would this come out next? Luke chapter 22. A dispute arose among them as to which was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules be like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves you? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood with me in my trials. 
And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred on me. They're celebrating Passover, and a dispute arose among them. It's almost like fighting after exchanging Christmas gifts. It's like a bride and a groom at the wedding reception, bickering. We can only be generous and appreciative for so long, and then this human nature seems to bubble out. It's a conversation of comparisons. It's a comparative term. Who's going to be the greatest? Who will come out on top of the pile? They're asking this at a meal where they've just celebrated the greatest of all, the Creator, the God who, who reached into Egypt, found His children who are in slavery and bondage, and pulls them out and parts the sea and puts them on safe land and assures their freedom into the future. Sitting at a meal with this greatest one, a dispute arose. It's such a story for them that that the exodus and coming out of exile is woven into all their storytelling. It's even at the beginning of our Ten Commandments summarized this way in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. At a meal celebrating God, the disciples just can't help it. They have this human instinct like the child who doesn't really want to drop the offering in the basket. It's an instinct. They know God's wish for humans. They've just celebrated it. God wishes for no human to be dominated by another human. God wishes for all people to be free. God wishes all of this for them, showed it to them, prays it for their future. Yet they're sitting at a table asking, who's going to be the greatest? And a dispute arose, the Bible says. If I was a good black preacher, this is just one of those preaching lines. I'm not in heaven. I'm in heaven, by the way. That's what I'm going to be. Good black preacher. I'm not joking. That's what I want to be. And a dispute arose, the Bible said. God, we know you're pretty great, but which one of us is going to be on top of the pile? It is in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been very busy with these disciples with a series of mighty reversals, turning things upside down the way the world operates, the way God operates, showing how these social powers and relational powers and religious powers are all reorganized in this new movement the disciples are part of. Now Jesus is getting ready to face the political powers, headed to Pilate, headed to Herod, headed to an open trial and to Calvary. There are two kingdoms literally crashing, politically and spiritually. Luke 22 again, verse 25, Jesus says to the disciples, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, which is to say the leaders of the nations, they relish their power, they rule with themselves in mind. The leaders of other nations spend their time declaring themselves great. But you, verse 26, are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, which means the newest to the group, the one with the, the least experience. And the one who rules, that means the one who is in charge, should be like one who serves. Here, here they are at a meal together. Jesus uses the very analogy of the table service. You're to be like the one who served. Who's greater, the one at the table, the one who serves? Isn't it the one at the table? That's how you all think. I am here as one who serves. You've stood by my trials. Now I confer upon you this kind of kingdom. And with the example, Jesus walks on 
showing what the service looks like, all the way to Calvary. Here's the vision. The one in charge is the one who serves. The ones perceived to be most respected in the circle, they take the role of the newcomer, the humble. When Matthew tells the story, he uses language a little bit different. He says, whoever wants to be great, let that one be your minister. Whoever wants to be the chief, let that one be the servant. It is interesting to me that Jesus doesn't mess with their instinct to want to be great. Why didn't he just tell them, you're not supposed to be great. I'm great. You're not. Why, why, why not that? He doesn't mess with their instinct to be great. Jesus rather redefines what this greatness looks like. This is what power looks like. This is how you come out on top of the pile. You will not be like other rulers who lord it over. In God's kingdom, we serve just like Jesus serves, just like God serves. This is precisely what Dustin summarized in his communion service a few weeks ago. If you missed communion Sabbath, my, you missed a good one. You can go onto the website and watch the video yourselves. I will not forget his line at the end of his sermon when he said, so fix your eyes on your Savior and remember, he's not up there. He's at your feet. Other leaders of other nations lord it over. They exercise a power over. But Jesus, who represents the invisible God, exercises this, this power under. Lion power, that's lorded over power. Lion power comes from self-serving. Lion power asks, well, what's good for me? Lamb power, however, is the power under, servant power, at the feet kind of power. Lamb power comes from others-centered serving. It's lamb power Jesus speaks about in Luke 22 when he tells the disciples, I now confer upon you this kind of a kingdom. It's a lamb power kingdom. You'll be lamb power leaders. The tale of these two kingdoms, lion power and lamb power, are not news to most any one of you sitting here today. Throughout the late fall in our sermon series, when we focused on the character of God, we spoke some about this. It matters who our leader is. It matters what our leader is about. It matters how our leader conducts the kingdom. We're really continuing that conversation briefly this morning. If it is a self-sacrificing, sacrificing other-centered leader who walks out into the political issues of the world the very same way with lamb power, then we know how we ought to walk out into the political issues of our day. It is startling in our text how blatant, how blatantly and how quickly we slip back into lion power in our world. I know I should put all the offering in the offering plate. But really, do I have to put this one? My instinct. There are costs to this kind of lamb power model, a kind of work only God can do in each one of us. I want to list maybe two or three of the costs if we choose lamb power. I will have to lay all my other human instincts before God because we see what humans are so capable of. A dispute arose. Do I have to put all the offering? This is what humans are like. Even Christians, I'll have to lay all my instincts for, before God. Now I'm talking about the political, the public square, political agenda, public policy, 
anything having to do with those agendas, and if I think I know, I'll have to lay that before God. My instinct to think that the world needs me or the world needs Christians for its moral guardians. I'll have to evaluate every one of these ideas. Is this really lamb power? I'll have to evaluate even the church by lamb power and how the church moves around in the public world. Remember in Christian history and Christian tradition, we are as guilty as anyone else of what Jesus is talking about in Luke 22. We are guilty of power over in Christianity. Be baptized or we'll kill you. Christian tradition has dirty hands. Ephesians 6, when it talks about our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of the dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Yes, even so, inside the Christian church, even so, inside Christian morality, anything, anything we must pass before God. Check our instincts. Is this really lamb power, or is this something else? Lamb power will also mean I'll have to give up polemics, friends, polemics, the things that divide us. Where is the dividing line? We give up polemics not just because they destroy, but because lamb power is a, by nature, it's a reconciling power. It's the kind of thing that pulls people together, not separates them. So we would have to give up our love to draw a line and pick sides and be right. Because lamb power isn't called to fight. Last week I cautioned that we, um, we be careful not to allow the media, the political parties, coalitions to set the agenda for us about what we ought to care about. That we not let others tell us what Christians should think, how Christians should vote, what Christian values look like. But that we take our vision from God. This is what I'm calling God's politics. It's a term borrowed from at least Jim Wallace. Listening to the dominant Christian voices inside America can be dangerous today. Evaluate them for polemics. If, they are, if they're ridden with polemics, then the lamb power is not pervading there. Listen for the us against them language. Listen for exaggerated distinctions which cause people to separate and feel different. Listen for the call to be on the right side, and we're talking then about polemics. That's not a conversation submitted to lamb power. Polemics aren't good for any of us. Finding the common good, finding our sameness, finding shared experiences, it certainly makes it easier to bow at someone's feet if you sense you're a little bit alike. Getting rid of polemics. If you saw the review last week, then you know that the review has jumped into the political conversation with this cover article and a cover picture actually entitled, Is God the Silent Candidate? And maybe that makes some of you relax. It's okay for us to talk about this in church because look what the Adventist Review has done. They got the White House and God on the cover. Whew. Inside that article, says that there are several thought leaders are offering what they think Christians ought to care about in terms, terms of political conversation. These think thought leaders say things, talk, they speak about terrorism, they speak about church and state issues, they speak about the morality in America as things Adventist Christians ought to care about. By the way, they also advocate opening up the church and allowing the church to be a place where the conversations happen. 
That's in your Adventist review. However, there was one person who mentioned something I want to share with you this morning. James Standish, the director of the Legislative Affairs for the General Conference, says when he thinks about what issues Christians might want to think about in the political year like this, we ought to be thinking about the disadvantaged, he said, and how they can work their way up for poverty. We ought to be thinking about peacemaking as a key issue. I just want to land on the disadvantaged and those in poverty. Lamb power means, if I pass all of these instincts by God, lamb power means that I won't get to be at the center anymore. When I think about public policy, when I think about who I'm going to vote for, it isn't just about me and my family. Be, I don't know how you vote, but that's pretty much how I vote. I read the issues, I study the, the measures, and I ask myself the question, what will this do for me and my family? And my circle is about this big, just big enough for us to step inside. But if it's lamb power, it means the other will stand inside the circle with me. I have to draw my circle bigger. And especially this morning, I just want you to consider for the last few minutes, those in poverty, those impoverished trying to work their way up, that my circle be large enough to include those people. I might not evaluate by what's best for me and my family. In fact, I wouldn't evaluate that way. I might walk into a polling booth. I might register my opinion in a public conversation on some agenda or policy based upon what does this do for those in poverty? Because that's a question Lamb Power asks. What would this do? Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Workers Society, that's the question their society asks over every decision. What will this decision do for the poor before they commit? What will it do for the poor? The Bible tells us the poor will be with us always. All four Gospels say that. It comes from Deuteronomy 15, probably. In Deuteronomy 15, 11, we read, There will always be poor in the land. Therefore, I commend you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and the needy in your land. The poor will be with you always. If you want some reading material for the week, study that saying in any of the Gospels. It's usually in the story with Mary and the extravagant gesture when she anoints the feet of Jesus. The poor will be with us always, so let her go ahead and do this extravagant thing. And I believe Christianity often interprets that to mean the poor will always, you wake up tomorrow, there'll be more poor people. So it's okay, take a little break. Not sure that's what the passage means at all. You study it yourself this week. It is very clear Jesus is poor. The disciples are poor. The people around him are poor. The poor will definitely be here always. It's their social location. They're together. They're poor. This is their life. If you hear prosperity gospel preached out there in the evangelical world right now, a lot of it is claiming that Jesus was wealthy, that he moved around the kingdom with lots of money. That's not true. Jesus is poor. When he sits at the table having the conversation with Mary and the extravagant gestures, there are poor people in the room. It's rather a statement, I believe, about in the kingdom, the poor are not always going to be out there. They're going to be right here with you in your circle. Now, how many poor people do you know? How many people below the poverty level do you know? Is there anybody you can reach out and touch in your circle of influence? 
who falls below the poverty line. Because this is one of our challenges as Christians. If the poor will be with us always, and, and our goal as lamb power people is to say, what would this do for the poor, and how could I serve the poor, we'll have to be in close enough proximity with the poor to know what their needs are, to know how to be helpful. And it occurs to me as I look around my circle, I just really don't know a lot of poor people, do you? We drop in in a park once in a while and feed people. We drop in and repair somebody's home or take a Thanksgiving basket or fix a holiday meal or take an armload of holiday presents. All good gestures. The poor will be with you always might mean they'll always be right next to your arms in this kind of a lamb power kingdom. And I'm not doing so good on that myself. I don't know so many poor people. When the Senate was called to order this week, Thursday morning, 9.30 a.m., and you got the news that you were getting a tax rebate, put a smile on your face. For a few days, you know, the details of that rebate were being hammered out in both sides of the government. For a few days, they argued over who, who should get it and how much it should be. And you can't do it unless you give tax breaks to the business owners and the wealthy. And we can't give any, any rebate to the poor. They don't even pay into the system. And that was actually on the floor, the conversation. And then Barry Black, the Senate chaplain, stood on Thursday morning at 9.30. You know Barry Black is an Adventist, Seventh-day Adventist, and happens to be the Senate chaplain. And this was his prayer. Merciful Father in heaven, we pray today for the hurting people of our nation and world. Use us to help the poor, the homeless, the hungry, the jobless. Make us your instruments to bring relief to those who daily live in fear of financial calamity. Then two more sentences. We pray for the members of the Senate who feel the hurt of the marginalized and are working for equitable and just legislation. Give them wisdom and courage as they bear the burdens of our society in domestic and international affairs. Amen. I believe Barry Black was about major God's politics in that prayer. Not because he sees in the Senate vote that that's what's happening, we're taking care of the marginalized, but he knows the wrestle behind closed doors. This isn't a gesture to take care of the poor. This is about the economy. This is about jump-starting the economy, right? But he prays the prayer of the Lamb Power Kingdom in front of the U.S. Senate as a reminder of the kind of people we ought to be in the world. What a prayer. Help us to take care of those who are poor in poverty. He didn't get the idea on his own. If you open your Bible, the poor, the marginalized, those who are oppressed are comprised probably the number one group in the Bible in terms of texts and references. Jim Wallace, and I encourage you to read any of his books. He has a new one out just last week, but any of his books. He tells a story of when he and his friends were young seminary students. And they decided as young seminarians first year that they wanted to know how many texts in the Bible mention the poor. And so they began at the beginning. Every time they saw the word poor, they circled the text. And, or a corollary, the poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden, the somehow, those who were at risk. They realized as they went that this is a lot of verses we're circling. 
And so one of his colleagues got a Bible and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut out every text in the Bible about the poor. And they worked their way from Genesis through Deuteronomy 15. Kept going, the year of the Jubilee, when everything is restored and all debts are paid. Keep going through the prophets, the poor and the oppressed, the number one topic of the prophets all through the Old Testament. Through exile, into the New Testament, Luke, about one in every seven to ten verses, mentions something about the poor, all the way through to the end of Revelation. Jim Wallace says he carries this Bible with him, and he holds it up once in a while and says, what I have here is a holy Bible. Because when you cut out every passage on the poor, there's not a whole lot left. Could I walk into a polling booth? Could I engage in public conversation? Could I make my choices asking the question, what will this do for the poor? Exactly what? I want to hear the whole story. Does this decision draw a circle big enough to include them? Because that's what lamb power would do. Or does this decision somehow marginalize them even more? I won't take time to go through all the statistics this morning, but about one in every nine children in Southern California live in poverty. You can get statistics from the National, National Bureau, uh, Census Bureau. You can look at the National Center for Child Poverty. California, because we are such a large state, we have more children who live in poverty below that $20,000 line. Two parents, two kids, a household of four is supposed to survive on $20,600 a year. Anything under that is considered poverty. One in nine children. If our pews were full this morning, that would be one, one child in every pew would stand up. That's how many children in America, the wealthy country, America, live in poverty. And then all the issues that come along, all the corollary problems that come to children who live in homes where there's not resources. 83,000 of those children live without a parent. No parents in the household. So education issues, health vaccine issues, you, you, you know, violence, gang issues, all the corollary problems because one in nine, we don't have to go to the Gaza Strip, we don't have to go to Egypt and Palestine to see a humanitarian crisis in the news this week. Just walk through the valley, Yucaipa Valley, walk through Riverside and San Bernardino County, just start counting one in nine of our kids live in poverty. And Jesus says, I confer upon you a kingdom of another kind a kingdom called to care about that. The beautiful thing about being church is that we are a community of transformation. Would you agree? We come inside the walls understanding there is power for something else because of God and God's grace. The beauty of being church is understanding there's hope, there's a future, transformation is possible. It comes one person at a time, one family at a time, and I believe one congregation at a time could actually change the face of poverty in America. Do you trust that if you followed the God who brought those out of exile and slavery and bondage, do you trust 
if you followed that kind of lamb power and you asked the question first, what will this decision, what will this action, what will this lifestyle habit and pattern do for the poor? Do you trust if you ask that question, you have a God who will can still supply all of your needs, all of your family's needs? That's a lamb power kind of congregation. I pray for us to be that. Amen. Dismiss us now, God, as a congregation where no dispute arises over this. May we be lamb power disciples. May you be our full vision, vision enough to last us on this earthly life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to invite some of you to go online. There is a sermon blog set up there. Conversation started last week. Talk with each other, would you, about these ideas? It's a good Sabbath afternoon.